0: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And I'm delighted today to have, as our guest, the Program Director for Local Foods at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Joanne Birkenkamp. Joanne, Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted. You know, there's such a huge movement for local food. I remember a Time Magazine cover that, oh gosh, this was probably several years ago now, that said local was the new organic. And so we we sort of have this idea that all local is good, but what is local? Well, that's a great question.
1: And as the Program Director for Local Foods here at IATP, I get that question frequently. And, you know, my take on it is that local is a concept that's kind of like the concept of community and that your sense of community is probably a little different than my sense of community, and that's because I have a different set of relationships. I come to it with my own sense of values uh, and my own sense of aspirations about how I want to eat and interact with the food system. So for some people, local may be about a very close geographic range, for instance, within 50 miles of where you live. For other people, that geography might be a whole food shed um, and very much driven by the topography of the area where you live. So it's about geography, but it's about other pieces too, Mm -hmm. right? It's about sustainability of how food is produced and the environmental consequences of it. It's about relationship. And I think particularly these days, as we've seen more difficulties with food safety scares and that kind of thing, people are really looking for transparency and they want that connection to their food and they want to know where it
0: came from. Absolutely. And, you know, I find that sometimes it's hard to find out. Sometimes it's hard to get to transparency. For example, I had called an infant formula company and they had just put out a chocolate-flavored toddler formula. I, I believe it has since been removed from the market because there was so much of a consumer uproar. But I called to find out, if the ingredients in that formula, it was a, if, if either the soy or the dairy, what kind of operations they came from? So was, was any of the formula that they produced organic? Were the soybeans in one of their formulations, uh, from GMOs? And it's difficult to get those, those tiny little answers or those nuances about the food system when you're dealing with this tremendously large industry.
1: It is very hard to know. And I have to say, Melinda, I love the fact that you refer to yourself as an investigative nutritionist. Because in a way, you know, all of us who eat have an interest in knowing what's in our food and how and where it was produced. And it's, I think, in all of our interests to investigate where our food comes from. And you're right that sometimes it's very hard to know the backstory on what you're eating. And my own feeling is, it's important to ask, and if you can't get an answer that's satisfying to you, then maybe you want to think about buying something different.
0: Right, providing you still have a choice.
1: Yes, absolutely, and choice is essential in our food system.
0: Mm-hmm. So how did you become interested in local foods? You know, I, I was reading your bio, and you hold a master's degree in public policy from Harvard University. You've worked internationally on food and agriculture programs. And now you, you've ended up in Minneapolis, and you are focusing all of your efforts on local foods. How did you come to this?
1: Well, I tell you, my uh, my own mother grew up on a cattle ranch in Wyoming, so I've got some ranching and farming history in my family. I grew up in central Illinois in a place that is very much about corn and soybean production, and these days now more hog operations and different kinds of animal agriculture. And over time, I just became increasingly concerned about my own diet and nutrition and about the effect of our food choices on our broader environment. And for me, food really is, it's a set of choices that reflect values that for me are very dear and very important. And, you know, as eaters, every time we purchase a piece of food, we're voting for something. Essentially, we're voting with our fork. And that might be voting for a system that is fair and transparent. It might be voting for a food system that contributes to environmental impacts that might be of concern it might be contributing to a food system where, you know, farm workers or people working in meat or dairy processing plants might be treated in ways that we're uncomfortable with, or where animals might be treated in ways that we're uncomfortable with. So for me, it really became a question about how do I want to interact with the food system, and over time, I was very fortunate that I was able to put those values to work in my professional life.
0: Mm-hmm. Indeed, and you know, I. I share your concerns about the food system of course but you know I'm always amazed at food meetings that I attend where sometimes I feel like the the lone investigator you know I I might be the only one at the table who thinks to ask the waiter for example what is local on the menu or where did that meat come from and you know, sometimes it's easy to feel like you're bothering people when you ask those questions. And then even at dietetic meetings or nutrition meetings where you'd think everyone was asking those questions, not enough people are doing so. And I I wonder how we can move people to feel more comfortable feeling like they have a right to know. Well, you know, I, I think to a large extent the, the predominant food system that
1: we have now kind of gives you the signal that food doesn't really come from anywhere, that it has no history, that it has no connection to place. You know, it comes out of the freezer. It it comes from a grocery store. And so for many people, I think it's kind of a new idea that, wow, this actually did come from somewhere and there is somebody behind this food, whether you can actually see it or not. Um, And my experience often is that as people come to understand more about how food is grown and where it's grown and why it matters they start developing this curiosity Mm -hmm. and then people ask one question and that leads to another question. And I think, you know, what you're seeing with the local foods movement these days and the growth in the number of people who want to be foodies is that many people really do have a natural curiosity about their food. And once they start thinking and asking, that leads to a greater curiosity and more exploration.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, one time I had heard Wendell Berry speak at Iowa State and I asked him afterwards, how to get people to care about where their food comes from. And he thought for a minute, and he came back with the most wonderful response. He said, well, get them to taste it. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? And I, I think that when people do taste it, they become more aware and more willing to question.
1: Absolutely. And you know, the lovely thing about food is everybody eats, right? Yeah. No matter rich or poor, whether you're a person who lives in a rural area, an urban area, No matter what your age is, we all eat, and it's something that we do every day. And in that respect, I think food issues can be very democratizing because everybody's part of the food system. And if you eat food, you count, you know? Right. Um, And so I think it is something that really can draw people together, particularly as there's more effort made to make sure that the food system works for all members of the community, no matter what your income level is, no matter where you live, and so forth.
0: Mhm, you know, I was thinking about something you had said earlier about the connections back to the farm and the farm worker and the really the social and environmental ju- justices or injustices that might be present, and those are harder to get to I know we 're looking now at the Immokalee, Florida situation with the tomato growers and there 's been real solidarity and there's been uh, there have been boycotts that have led to changes industrial changes in food choices and food purchasing. And I wonder how much of that you've seen internationally in your work. It's sort of this coming together of groups to work for justice.
1: Well, there's quite a lot of that overseas. And it's interesting, you know, in many countries there are very highly developed and large organizations that represent farm workers or peasants, for instance, small landowners, different kinds of people who are involved in the food system. And IATP is very much involved with those sorts of efforts around the world. We also work... Very much in the world of trade agreements that influence, for instance, the capacity of countries to try to control their own food system, keep uh, local production in their own countries, to influence how imports are handled, since that often influences the viability of their own local agriculture and the abil- availability of, or the ability rather, of countries to feed themselves. And those are, are kind of complex and arcane issues that most of us don't interact with, but they do have a great influence on the food sovereignty of countries overseas.
0: Mhm. Yeah, let's talk about that word, food sovereignty. What does that mean exactly?
1: Well, it's a word, a term that I think people use in different ways. When I think about it, I really think about the ability and the rights of countries to control their own food system. And that means everything from ways of owning and managing land that serve the citizens of their own countries and the residents of their own countries. It also includes things like how they manage their supply of food, for instance, and are they able to maintain reserves of food that protect their own population from fluctuations in weather, from speculation in international commodity markets that may have very severe impacts on the price of food and so forth. So we work around the world to support the rights of countries to be able to look after the food needs of their own populations.
0: This is so important. And we I think many times we live in sort of an isolated environment. We don't think about how our agricultural practices here in the United States affect the well-being and the ability for, for nations and for people to have the freedom of choice in how they eat. I'll give you an example. I was in the Yucatan Peninsula, I guess it was last spring, and I learned that the Mexicans there were no longer growing their own corn because it was coming in from the United States. And here, you know, you talk about a crop being such a tremendous part of a person's identity. And I thought that was really sad, and I certainly don't understand all of the political issues involved but I thought it was really tragic that a person's identity through food was being changed because of another nation's agricultural policies.
1: Yes, and the dynamic that you're describing, to a significant extent, was kind of kickstarted by the passage of NAFTA, mm-hmm. the North American Free Trade Act, back in the early 90s between Canada, Mexico, and the United States, And part of what came about as a result of NAFTA is that a lot of American corn products started moving into Mexico. And as you know, according to our federal farm policy, our corn production and and other commodities in the U.S. is very highly subsidized and sometimes is being sold below the actual cost of production. And as that product was moving into Mexico, it made it very hard for Mexican farmers to compete, even to sell to consumers within Mexico itself. And that has contributed to a lot of people in Mexico who had farmed for many generations having to leave the land Um, Mm -hmm. and, in some cases, being displaced, moving overseas to look for work, including in the United States. And that's a story that often is not really told, right? right, that that international trade regime has really influenced migration patterns and cultural patterns, and particularly in a place like Mexico where corn is so integral to the culture. It has had very significant impacts that I think frequently are not recognized.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you don't. These are not the stories that get on the front page. You know, I think that our whole media environment chooses to tell certain stories, and I I think as citizens, our responsibility is to dig a little bit deeper and to find out what kinds of stories are not being reported. And you gave a great example of one that we should all be aware of, especially as we're looking at uh, the the farm bill, the new farm bill that's going to be coming out. Before you address that, I have to stop and take a break and just let our listeners know that we are speaking to Joanne Birkenkamp, who is the Program Director for Local Foods at the Institute for Ag and Trade Policy in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So, Joanne, let's get back to this. This whole issue of the Farm Bill and policies, and what do you think if you could influence the new Farm Bill, what would you do?
1: Well, as your listeners probably know, the Farm Bill is this very, very large body of federal legislation that moves through the process kind of and renewed every five years, every five or six years, and it really drives a whole lot of food and farm policy in the United States, and it's everything from the subsidy programs for commodities to funding for research in agriculture to funding, for instance, for new farmers and limited resource farmers, farmer training, um, and then a very large part of the Farm Bill budget actually is tied to food support programs like Supplemental Nutrition Program, which used to be called Food Stamps. Right. That's part of the Farm Bill as well. So all of those programs are up for uh, revisitation every five years. And that will happen again in 2012. It may even start happening in 2011, this time around. So it's a massive and very complicated and not very sexy piece of legislation, but it's one that organizations like IATP care a lot about because it's such a huge driver in our food system. So we would hope that there would be additional support for things like organic and sustainable farming methods, increased support for the foods in our food system which support good health and healthy eating habits, particularly the production of fruits and vegetables. And if you look at the commodity programs in the United States, they largely benefit about 20 crops, including half a dozen or so main ones like corn and soybeans. They don't support to a significant degree the production of fresh fruits and vegetables. And as we know, most Americans are not getting enough fruits and vegetables. In fact, I think if you look at American teenagers – Fewer than 10% are actually meeting the recommended daily allowance of fruit and vegetable consumption. And as we know, fruits and vegetables and healthy whole grains and so forth are critical for a healthy diet, and when people are not getting the right kind of diet, it tends to contribute to a whole series of chronic diseases and obesity. So we look for food systems and food federal farm policy that really treats our food system, as a vehicle for supporting the health of all Americans through constructive policies. So that's, that's a big order. That's a mm-hmm. tall order. And in may, many cases, that's not the way the Farm Bill has been oriented for many decades. But those are the kinds of changes that we seek.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I know you've worked trying to get more local food into schools. That's something that I think a lot of us can agree on. You know, we may come from blue states or red states and be from totally different demographics and ethnic groups, but I think we can all agree that the health of our children is of paramount importance. And so getting more healthful foods into the school system is very important. You've done work with School Food Focus. What are some of the barriers that you've seen firsthand with regard to getting more healthful foods into schools and more local food into schools.
1: Sure. There are plenty of challenges. You know, it is not an easy system to change because the national school lunch program has been in place since the late 1940s or so. It's complicated. It's highly regulated. But some things that people often don't know, for instance, is that typically in a K-12 school environment, schools will have about a dollar to spend on the actual food in a school lunch. And then there are other costs associated with labor and various sorts of overhead expenses. But they generally have about a dollar to spend on a school lunch. And with that dollar, they need to provide some very specific quantities of proteins, fruits, vegetables, whole grains or grain products, and milk. So when you start thinking about how do you shift that, you know, you can see that there are some very serious budgetary challenges that schools are facing. And yet, as we work with schools, we're seeing that they are finding ways to bring in local choices and healthier choices. And we're very pleased to see that process really taking hold in Minnesota and across the country.
0: Mm-hmm. What pieces of the infrastructure would you want to address to make this be more to make school food, local school school food, in more schools, you know how to how to move that how to move that whole program forward. I see little little bits and pieces of it happening, but then what I see largely are people saying, "But now to get now to move from even beyond the fruits and vegetables." I know you worked um, with apples, for example, it was a great example where apples are an easy fruit to get into the schools. They're ripe when school is in season. But now let's, let's push that envelope a little bit farther and say, you know, I'd really like to get local dairy, and I'd really like to get more local meat into the school system, and on top of that, I'd like it to be organic. What pieces of the infrastructure are missing there?
1: Well, you're right. You know, here in Minnesota, when schools start doing farm-to-school, apples are often the first thing that they do, Right. Um, and that's because they have a, apples have a real strong Minnesota identity. They're easy to obtain. Smaller apples are compatible with the portion sizes that schools need. They're less perishable and so forth. So we often see schools start with apples and then progress to other kinds of fruits and vegetables, then into things like whole grains, dried beans, that kind of thing, and then often are the proteins, the milk and cheese and and meats and that sort of thing. So for us, you know, we really try to support approaches to farm to school that work in all sorts of different school contexts. So in many schools, they no longer have what you would think of as a kitchen, right? Mm -hmm. They may not have staff who have knife skills, who are able to cut whole tomatoes, for instance. So in a situation like that, what often is needed is for schools to work through a company that might aggregate that product from local farms and then pre-cut it so that they're getting you know, carrots cut into carrot coins and tomatoes that have been diced and that some of that infrastructure then is actually housed at a processing company that has the direct relationships with farmers. Another model that is growing very rapidly is for schools actually buying direct from farmers that may be down the road for them. We're seeing a lot of schools in Minnesota buying from farmers that are very close by, who might be living in their county, might be paying taxes into the school district. Sometimes the farmers have kids in the school district, and they're working out direct relationships with those farmers where they're able to buy that product direct. And to do that, you need school food service staff that have some capacity to handle, you know, a whole case of tomatoes, right, that it's not right. pre-cut, that they're getting it in the same form you get it at a farmer's market, for instance, and that they have the skills and the uh, kitchen facilities to be able to do that. So there are challenges around the facilities, and there also, I think, is a process of school food service staff who may have in the past mostly been handling pre-processed and kind of ready-to-heat Foods, a process of them becoming comfortable with those, uh, with handling those unprocessed items, and so we very much focus on partnering with school food service staff, kind of shoulder to shoulder, to work together to support training for their their school food service staff at all levels, from the director in a given district all the way down to the folks who are actually preparing the food in the schools, and really helping them develop that comfort level. And what we're seeing that is that as people start to learn about how farms to school can work, they're finding ways to weave it into their menus, finding ways to weave it into their budgets. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very important process because, you know, the devil is really in the details. But we very much focus on partnering in a very respectful way with school food service staff. And I have to say, you know, I started learning about school lunch about five years ago, and I am still learning.
0: Oh, sure. It's a
1: lot more complicated than you might think. But Again, I think the schools are very committed to the health of their kids, and they want to do the right thing, and we really value the partnerships that we have with our school food service partners.
0: Have you looked at all at the financial benefits of having a more locally-based food system in place, be it, uh, you know, where local foods going to schools, but also other institutions such as hospitals and prisons and uh, local businesses How does the financial piece work with regard to benefiting the local economy?
1: Well, you're right that many different types of organizations now are trying to think about local and sustainable sourcing. And you're right, it's schools, it's hospitals, it's jails, it's nursing homes, you know, grocery retailers, um, all sorts of businesses and other types of institutions around the country are really thinking about how to do this. When you look at the economic benefits, you know, what you see is in many cases those kinds of institutions or retailers, for instance, buying from folks who are closer to home. So rather than buying a product from California or grapes from Chile or a product that might be coming from other places in uh, Central or South America or China or the Middle East, they're looking at buying from local farmers. So what that means is rather than the money going to a different part of the United States or overseas, it's really being spent in local communities. And we know, for instance, that when that happens, often when you spend a dollar in a local community, that dollar and often you know a dollar of two or three ends up circulating within the community uh, multiple times. and so what you see then is rather than the money leaving the community, it's going to a local farmer who is paying taxes in his community. Um, he's going to be spending a portion of that dollar for you know whatever the needs of his farm and his family might be. You might be having a savings account at the local bank or the credit union where that money is being held and circulated as well. So it really is a story about how to keep that food dollar local and circulating in local communities. And we know, for instance, for many institutions that are starting to think about local food, that desire to help their local economy is one of the main reasons why they're starting to – consider this local food procurement a priority.
0: Mm -hmm. Joanne, we just have a minute left. I knew our time together was going to fly. You have such an amazing background and such great insight. But is there anything that you wish I would have asked you or that I neglected to ask about your work that you want to share with our listeners?
1: Well, I would just encourage your listeners to really get involved with their food in whatever level is comfortable to them, whether that means starting their own garden whether it means taking their kids to the the farmer's market or taking the neighbor's kids to the farmer's market, calling their school to say, please support Farm to School. Um, It's all good, and there are lots of ways for people to engage. And, you know, I always say that an inquisitive, informed consumer is the best friend of farmers who are trying to raise healthy food in a sustainable way. So, folks, just ask about your food. Be curious. Enjoy it. Love it because you're part of it. You're part of the food system, and the choices you make really make a difference.
0: I think that's great advice. We've been speaking with Joanne Birkenkamp, who is the Director for Local Foods at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy based in Minneapolis, and I want to thank Joanne so much for being with us, and Just broadening our perspectives on on food, it's complicated. It's more complicated than we'd like to think sometimes. But you have been a wonderful contributor to our understanding. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Joanne. Thank you for your work.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you.